Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest. Whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander, we hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK-centric, on the big issues of the day. Welcome back, Peter. Since we last spoke, I think it's fair to say that the markets have been, broadly speaking, what I would describe as ranging. They're still kind of looking for their direction, whether it's going to get better or whether it's going to get worse. They're sort of tracking sideways mostly. Been some interesting developments. But I thought that on this podcast, we might talk about uh, the fund management business rather than about the markets per se. Uh, obviously, the two are very intimately connected. But fund management well, is something you've been involved in for well a long time more than 30 years, at least, 40, 50, whatever it is. I can't remember how many years it is, all the way back to biblical times. So you have a lot of hands-on experience about fund management, and I've been following the fund management industry assiduously for many years. One of the themes that uh, has been occurring to me is the importance of marketing and communications in fund management. In other words, it's not just enough as a fund manager to make some good investments. You've got to do a lot more than that. Uh, now, I have to say, I had the good fortune of going to interview Warren Buffett about uh, 30 years ago. I said, well, what's it all about? And the first thing he said to me was that um, fund management was essentially 75% marketing and 25% performance. And now, what he meant by that was he was actually quite critical of the fund management business in the sense that, as many people know, the majority of funds don't actually outperform their benchmarks over time. But there are some who do. But his point was that one of the issues of the fund management industry is that even if you uh, aren't a very good performer, you can still do quite well by by having very good marketing. I think your stance may be slightly different, which is that uh, uh, even if you have good performance, you also need to have good marketing and good communication with your investors. So I, I wonder, first of all, how you would react to that uh, comment that uh, Warren Buffett made. I'm very pleased that you suggest that we talk about this, because if you had wanted to talk about the markets, that would have been fine. But there haven't been any particularly big changes since the last time we spoke two weeks ago. It's the usual toing and froing between the central banks and the markets and so on. That hasn't changed. It will uh, at some stage. But for the moment, we, I think, are quite right to move to this very closely related but different subject. I would concur with Warren Buffett. I concur with probably most of the things he says. And I think he's right if he says that 75% of fund management involves marketing. I would put it slightly differently. I would say that as a fund manager, you have two items in front of you, two subjects, two, if you like, of your highest priorities. One is the client's portfolio, and the other is the client himself. And I have always operated on the basis that the client's portfolio has a higher priority than the client himself. In other words, the well-being of the investment portfolio ranks number one, and just below that ranks the client's well-being. And that I developed in my mind over the decades for really quite a simple reason which is that if you go through a very tricky bear market like we did last year, the riskiest moment for the portfolio is when the market has hit the bottom. And the greatest risk to that portfolio at that time is usually the client himself, the investor himself, 
who can't stand it anymore, decides to take matters into his hands and ends up selling at the worst moment at the bottom. That's something I've seen many times over the cycles. And incidentally, it also works at the top of the market, at the end of a bull market. So I think that whole topic, Warren Buffett is quite right. You are quite right. What we need to do now is dissect the notion of marketing into its parts. Yes, it's interesting, just in passing, make a comment, sort of sitting on the other side of the business at this point as somebody who is, you know, following their fund management and analysing it and, and trying to find which funds do best. Because, of course, the hardest part to discover is whether or not the firms and the fund managers are doing what you just said that uh, they should be doing, which is looking after the client and trying to stop the client doing things which turn out to be unwise. That's a very difficult thing to measure externally. You can only really find it out by... Uh, watching how they behave at different points in time. And ideally, of course, by being within the fund management firm yourself. So let's uh, dissect what is involved in that process. I think the point that Buffett was getting at, first of all, was that the, the marketing initially is all the open-ended fund industry has been driven by the need to attract uh, investors in the first place, where you make wonderful propositions and you tell them how good you are and, and uh, all the things you've done. And that tends to be uh, how should we say, you know, everybody's on their best foot forward, should we say? <laughs> They're trying to sell you something. But then, of course, this, the second part, which you're alluding to, is actually how do you keep and how do you manage your clients after that, particularly in the open-ended fund world where, you know, unlike the investment trust world, which I follow more closely, investors can take their money away. They just notify you they're taking their money away, right? They don't have to sort of speak to you or anything else. So how do you marry those two things together? I guess that's the issue. You've, you've got to, first of all, get the clients, and then you've got to keep them. And they require slightly different skills, I would think, and uh, slightly different approaches. Would that be uh, fair to say? Very fair to say. And they're very different approaches and very different skills. For example, if you're a broker who wants to place a new issue of shares, then you wax lyrical in front of the potential investor with regard to this investment. And in the end, he decides to go for it. So you've placed your shares. And as soon as you've placed the shares, you turn your back on the investor you turn your back on the situation and you go on and try and find the next situation. That, of course, is very, very different from trying to attract an investor to the, a service that you offer. So in other words, a broker who places some new shares, I don't call that a service. I call that a one-off transaction. Whereas what we do and what you have seen in the closed-end world, which is, I think, slightly different, but very closely related to the open-end world, is, of course, you are entering into a long-term relationship with an investor. It's a little bit like a patient going to a doctor and confidence building in the doctor needs to take place and so on. So it is very much a person's people business, a person-to-person -person service in an extremely delicate field, which is the field of money. After all, if you think about it, it's not an easy decision for a person, even when it comes to somebody else's money. In other words, if you hand over the management of your financial affairs to a third party, that's a big move. That's a big deal. It requires a lot of trust and confidence in the person who's offering the service. And in today's world where fund management has become extremely competitive, much more so than 40 years ago when you and I were involved as younger men, because you have a whole plethora of different styles, approaches, 
sometimes gimmicks that you have to cut through and understand. So staying close to the client at all times, I think it is extremely important that the fund manager must regularly at all times, in good times, but even more in difficult times, stay very close to the investment. And you might think, I'm sure you agree, that this is fairly obvious, but you'd be surprised how many fund managers go to ground when the going gets tough. Indeed they do. That is a well-known phenomenon. Yeah, they're much easier to find. And they're much happier to talk to you and tell you how wonderful they are when when things are going well than when they're going badly. The point you've made essentially is that uh, in fund management at least, I mean, we're not talking about private client wealth managers or people like that. We're talking about fund managers. There is a difference between the fund as a product and the fund as a service. And for many years, the business was basically driven by people treating it as a product and just selling it and then forgetting about people after that. And of course, the other part of it is about um, value for money as well. And value for money is, this is a very kind of contentious issue, I think, in the whole fund management, money management business, which is what is value for money? And, uh, you know, how much am I paying for the privilege of having either the product or the service? I go back far enough that I can remember back in the 1980s in the UK, this is something similar was still the case in the US, I think, where, you know, their routine would be, you would have what's called a front end load. In other words, you paid 5% in some cases. So you invested £100 and 5% immediately was given away to somebody else, typically in commission or to the fund manager. And, you know, it took a long time for your £95 to even to get back to 100 which is where you were before then. Since then, we've seen a whole revolution. People like Jack Bogle at Vanguard have pioneered a revolution, which has seen competition for the fund management business, the traditional fund management business. And those front-end loads have disappeared in many cases or in most cases. And uh, annual management fees have also come down. So sitting from where you are, what you are saying to your clients is uh, not only are you getting a service as well as a product, but you're also getting value for money. And how easy or how difficult is it to persuade them that they're getting value for money? The distinction between a product and a service, I think, is very important. I'm glad you've brought it up. I'm also glad you brought up value for money. But with regard to product versus service, I never liked the word product because a product is something you go and buy in a shop off a shelf and you put it in your bag and you leave the shop. But this is not a product, what we are talking about. It's very much a service. Remember the allusion to um, a doctor, for example. So I think that what you say is completely right. Now, with regard to value for money, it's very opportune for you to bring up this subject right now, because you know that regulators, financial markets regulators, who are in a way slightly different depending on what they're regulating, but at the same time, the broad brush ideas are no doubt coordinated amongst them because they're all pretty similar, even though some regulators compete with other regulators. And then they have fashionable subjects, depending on one year or the next year. And it so happens that at the moment, and not only with regard to the Financial Conducts Authority in the UK, but also other regulators, the boards of funds, for example, have as a high priority regularly to check whether the fund manager is offering value for money. So you could quite legitimately ask, well, what does that mean exactly? And if you ask, what does it mean? The regulator will give you probably a list of 10 things that it means, which is probably less helpful than helpful. 
because how long is a piece of string? What is value for money? If fund A bears a higher management fee than fund B, but has a superior long-term record compared with fund B, why should there be pressure for fund A to reduce its fees to the same level as fund B? So you then get to what I call the tail wagging the dog. In other words, the management fee tail wagging the portfolio dog. In the last few years, this has been a huge subject and, of course, has spawned the birth of exchange-traded funds and index funds and things like that. And you mentioned Jack Bogle. I think he was the father of this. And it's become an absolutely gigantic area as a lot of funds have flown out of active management into so-called passive management. Because as you said earlier, quite rightly, it is a minority of active managers who end up beating the benchmark that they are paid to beat. Now, whether or not that actually serves the interest of the investor who ends up with an exchange-traded fund or an index fund which has lower management fees, in some cases, by the way, zero management fees, but a lesser performance, or whether you prefer higher management fees and a better performance on the basis that you get what you pay for. That's a long-running debate. I may just close that off by saying, if you buy a cheap pair of shoes, you can expect that cheap pair of shoes to last for a couple of months. And then you have to go out and buy another cheap pair of shoes. If you'd bought an expensive pair of shoes in the first place, it would have served you for many more miles of walking around. Right. And that is true, of course. I guess the problem with that analogy is that it's easy to tell which are the expensive shoes and which are the not expensive ones, but it's not uh, necessarily the case that you know you know how good the shoes are. In other words, that just because they're priced highly, they may be for fashion. I mean, it's extraordinary the story about trainers, Michael Jordan trainers. I don't know if you've been following that story. Quite quite remarkable that everybody had to own these things, even though they cost, you know, I don't know what, £100 a pair or more, £200 or something, and they only cost about £3 to make. Uh, that's a sort of branding issue. And that's a product, a branded product. And there's no guarantee that they will last any longer than the cheaper ones. People buy them for the wrong reason. So, I mean, that raises all sorts of interesting questions. And really, the fundamental one is, how do you tell? How do you tell that a fund manager is actually going to be able to add what we call add some value over time when the evidence is clear that the majority of funds don't do that? And increasingly, under the pressure, you know, that, that ETFs, if you have a, a kind of big, broadly based ETF following the S&P 500 or the UK FTSE, you will reliably, over time, get second quartile performance, what's called second quartile performance. In other words, you will be better than the average, but you won't be necessarily in the top performers. They're very rarely in the top performers, but you are more reliably in the second quartile. In other words, between 25 and 50%. If you rank all the funds in order, you'll be in the kind of you know second division, if you like, but not in the third or fourth division. So I think it is a credible alternative. I think people like Jack Bogle have demonstrated that it is a credible alternative, or if you like, a building block you can use to get this sort of average performance. But of course, just as everybody wants to be taller than everybody else, they, everybody wants to be better than everybody else. So there is this great drive to get first quartile performance to be in the very top tier. And it's very difficult to achieve. 
And the only way you can really measure how good you are at it is to do it over very long periods of time. And investors are naturally impatient. They, if they sit there for five years and they're still underperforming, you know, the question is, well, how long do I have to go on before I get the rewards of being with the best performers? And that's a, it's a very difficult thing for outsiders to judge, isn't it? I mean, I think we're all looking for the very, very good long-term performers, but they're quite hard to make out, you know, in advance, shall we say. They're probably impossible to make out in advance. I agree with you. It reminds me, coming back to what you said about Warren Buffett, it reminds me of his description of the raison d'etre, if you want, of an index fund or an exchange-traded fund. He calls it its protection against the investor's ignorance. Now, I had to think about that a long time because does he mean it in a pejorative way? Uh, In other words, saying an ignoramus investor shouldn't necessarily think that he is in a safe haven zone by spreading his money across uh, hundreds of investments in an index fund. So does he mean it in a negative way Or does it mean it in a protective way to say that the investor cannot be expected to be anything but ignorant because he's not a professional, he's just an investor. And so to minimize, if you like, this risk attached to his ignorance, he will have no choice but to put his money into an exchange traded fund. Now, I don't think about this anymore because I don't do and I never did index funds for a whole lot of other reasons, not just what we've discussed, but for a whole lot of other reasons. But I remember that you, as a prolific author, once edited a book called Only the Best Will Do, which would answer the question that you've now put, how can the investor get to the bottom of this? And I think that if the investor can identify what he wants, which is difficult enough, it's difficult enough, But if he can find the fund manager or the investment manager, I use these words interchangeably, he could find the manager who will suit his own perception of risk, even if that perception of risk is not the right perception of risk or is um, established wisdom. So it's a very difficult subject that you've said that we're talking about. But I think to me, it's relatively clear that there has to be a priority And that is to get the risk side of the matter right, and therefore to improve your knowledge, if possible, and your understanding of what your fund manager is doing. Absolutely. I mean, I know that when Buffett made those kind of comments, he didn't mean it in a pejorative sense. He made it in the sense that people have to invest their money, and there's no reason why the great majority of people should either be that interested to be able to be a professional investor or to uh, have the knowledge base to do so. So I think that's where he was coming from with that, and I think he's absolutely right. I think the point you've just alluded to is also important, which is, I think we are saying it's very difficult to define what risk is in conventional terms. I mean, the, a lot of the, uh, the marketing of funds these days is based on, uh, you know, kind of mathematical formulas that purport to take risk into account, by which they mainly mean, though, either volatility, in other words, how much the share price might go up and down in the short term, or by the amount of capital you might actually lose. And uh, Buffett, for example, is very keen on this concept of saying, the reason you should invest with him is that he's interested in in protecting people from permanent loss of capital. In other words, that is if you have a sustained period of underperformance. And it's not necessarily about uh, how you do in the very short term, which is how most investors look at it and how it's measured. But it's very difficult to, to measure that risk effectively. And I guess the other side of that is 
you know, I was lucky enough to meet Warren Buffett, and uh, he's a very convincing guy. But there are a lot of very convincing guys out there who turn out to be not very good investors. <laughs> you know, if you've got a good marketing spiel, and the Americans in particular are very good at marketing uh, spiel, you know, you can be taken in. For example, in the UK, we've had the example of uh, Neil Woodford, who's a, a very successful fund manager over many, many, many years. And his he became a kind of cautionary tale. Because he basically, I think it's fair to say, he got bored with managing money the way that he was managing it, which is quite dull, uh, but very successful in, over the longer term. And he started to do more things, investing more, uh, you know, unlisted companies and different types of companies. And it all went very badly wrong. But, you know, his reputation was such, and most people didn't follow it closely enough to know that he'd actually changed the way he was managing the money. And that's a kind of hidden risk, if you like, even if you find somebody who's performed very well for you over many, many years. If Warren Buffett suddenly went sort of loco and started doing crazy things that he'd never done before, that's quite difficult. So what you want are people who you can trust and people who will go on doing what they've said they're going to do as long as they're doing the biz, the job. One of the most important adages that I remember, and of course, Warren Buffett is the big exception to that, is that when a fund manager becomes more and more famous and turns into a star fund manager, and when that star fund manager appears on the front cover of Time magazine, that's when you put in your sell order. And I think that Mr. Woodford was probably of that ilk. I mean, I didn't know him. You knew him, of course. And I think he got derailed for whatever reason. But to come back to what you said about mathematical formulas, that investors rely on, even when they don't really understand them, these mathematical formulas are actually known as equity factors, were invented not long ago by somebody inside Bloomberg, I think it was, are all quantitative in nature, and they're not at all qualitative in nature. And so if you manage a portfolio based on these, I think there are probably about seven or eight of such equity factors, then there are a lot of non-tangible things that you're going to be missing compared with somebody who manages money more in a qualitative way by looking into the whites of the eyes of the management, by having, let's say, 10 golden rules that most of them, you can't quantify them. You can't quantify them. For example, rules regarding governance or rules regarding the transparency of accounts or that sort of thing. You can't necessarily quantify them. And that's the difficulty for many investors, because the investors who go for these equity factors, they find solace in hiding behind established wisdom and to a certain extent, sound bites, which, as you said, you know, certain people, especially the Americans, are, are very good at propagating and, and at developing. But I think that in order to avoid what you referred to as the permanent loss of capital, you've got to go deeper than that. It's very difficult for an individual investor, for a non-professional investor to do that. So he's got to rely on this trusted investment manager and understand what it says on the tin. The other thing, if I may just end this particular part by saying, is that the regulators, they put every fact sheet, every prospectus of funds says you should not rely on the past track record to make your investment decisions or something like that. I must say, I don't agree with that. If you can't rely on somebody's past track record, what can you rely on? So it's a number of things that you need to pay attention to, and it's very complicated. 
It is certainly uh, very complicated. I think one issue which raised by what we're talking about is the problem of if you are a well-known fund manager, successful fund manager, it's not just the fact that you may become kind of intoxicated with your own brilliance, shall we say, as we've seen that happen a number of times, particularly in the hedge fund world and so on. If you think you're a master of the universe and like to parade the fact that may become a behavioral problem. But the other issue is if you are a well-known, successful fund manager with a good track record, Everybody wants to talk to you. So how do you manage your own time when, when actually people want you to be managing the investments? They don't want you to be out there parading around. But on the other hand, everybody wants to see you and to hear from you. And that's how they build the trust as well. So it's quite a balancing act to get this balance between actually doing the investing, which is what you uh, are being paid to do, but also um, providing the reassurance and unfortunately, uh, doing marketing to get more money in to manage. So uh, that's a tension which has always been there in the in the fund management business. And I think was, uh, you know, the heart of the issue that Warren Buffett was talking about, which is that if you're running it from a business perspective, particularly in the open-ended fund world, you want to go on adding more money all the time because it basically, most of it goes to the bottom line once you get to a certain scale. So kind of greed overtake service, if you like. So there's two issues there. One is how you balance the time internally in the firm between if you are a successful manager, and the other is what priority should you give to winning more money as opposed to you know doing a good job for those you that money you've already got. As opposed to thirdly, looking after the clients that you already have. And as Warren Buffett said, 75% of successful fund management lies in client servicing and marketing. And I think today you'll agree, I'm sure you'll agree, it is actually much easier to liaise with your investors, to make them feel comfortable, to give them a service because of all these instant online possibilities of reaching your investor. That wasn't the case 30 years ago. There was no such thing as the internet. There was no such thing as sending a document in the space of five seconds. You had to do it all very laboriously. But today, my point is this, there is no excuse, there is no valid reason for a fund manager to go to ground. Obviously, there's no valid reason for that fund manager, when he's very successful, to think that he's the king of the world. Last year, 2022, was actually a very, very good example. If you have a parallel team, your firm, which looks after marketing and client servicing, in particular and foremost of the clients that you have. The clients that you have are more important than the clients that you don't have. And that, I think, is absolutely crucial. You, you must never give a new client the impression that now that you've won his mandate, you say goodbye and you go and find the next mandate. That is quite the opposite of what you need to do which is to give the investor the impression, and it has to be true, not just an impression, that he is the most important investor in the sense that it makes no difference whether he has 100 million with you or 100,000. So I think all these things are much easier than they used to be. There's no excuse for not doing them. If you have a good performance and a good marketing exercise and a good client servicing exercise and a philosophy that makes a lot of sense, then it is hoped that in time, the new will materialize and join the old investors and the service that they receive. Which brings us perhaps to the final point, which is one of the issues about financial, which I have some quite strong views in, is that, uh, you know, is it a good idea for your fund management company to be a publicly quoted company? 
where you are subject to the demands of the stock market, that uh, you know, short-term performance is very important. Plus, the ability to grow the assets under management in your fund management firm is very intense. And the way that many firms get around, of course, they can become much bigger. They have lots of funds. And so they've always got one or two that are doing quite well, but the others are not necessarily doing so well. Uh, but they are in this sort of endless game to try and add more clients, to add more money to, to manage, because that's the way that their fee income goes up naturally. Now, from a personal perspective, I've made some nice amounts of money from investing in fund management companies that are listed, precisely for the fact that they do get this kind of geared effect when you have a rising uh, stock market. You, they make more money, and that's very nice. You do better than the market itself. Uh, but I'm not convinced that it's very good for the investors in the funds that the fund manager company is looking after. So I don't know if you have a view about that, Peter. You're obviously not a listed fund management company. But uh, of course, Warren Buffett is, but he has a very different approach and he doesn't take a much of a fee either. But um, anyway, give me your thoughts on that final point, uh, Peter. Yes, on this final part, actually, I do have views, not only relatively strong views, but also views that are based on experience. I've seen this. I was involved very closely with a company which was a private investment manager, which then sought a listing, got the listing. And from that moment on, things started to deteriorate. As a manager of a fund management business, First of all, there's no real reason to go and have yourself listed on a stock exchange. It's not as if you need money. So usually what happens is that they do it for reasons of ego. So it's a vanity project because then you're listed on the stock exchange somewhere. But as soon as you're listed on the stock exchange as the manager of a fund, your approach, your mentality completely changes and goes from the long-term mentality you had before to a quarter-by-quarter quarter obsession on what you're going to say on the earnings call and an obsession with regard to what is your share price doing. And so when your share price goes down 10% in two weeks, you panic. And when the share price goes up 10% in two weeks, you clap your chest. But it is totally irrelevant. Both these examples are irrelevant to the long-term development of the business and the performance of the portfolios. So I never really understood why, especially small fund managers. Now, if you're talking about huge fund managers, that's different, you know. Um, I'm sure that BlackRock would have a different reason for seeking a quote uh, compared to the smaller ones. But I find that it has an immediate and usually negative effect on top management, on middle management, on the portfolio managers who also have to go out there and say things. And if they say things that are slightly controversial, they get clobbered on the head by someone or they get fired. Uh, and so what they say is largely consisting of sound bites and so on. And then when the earnings call is over, they say, phew, we've made it through to the next earnings call. And meanwhile, they keep their eyes glued to the share price rather than on their portfolios. Yes, well, I have to say, I, I can only agree with you. Just to give you another sort of quote from Warren Buffett, who I think has been very sound on this matter. And it was interesting, was great friends with Jack Bogle and people like that, shared a lot of ideas with them. Um, and it was and is a sort of fan of ETFs for people who don't know how to find the best fund. And he said that the stock market is a, is a mechanism from transferring wealth from the impatient to the patient, which I think is a good way of describing it. In other words, the long-term investors who are in the right place with the right fund managers will do best uh, because of the short-term focus of the stock market itself. And I think that is genuinely uh, the case. 
And it's also the case that, you know, some of the most durable, uh, large investment management firms, I'm thinking of not just Vanguard, but also Fidelity, remain privately owned. And uh, that does give them, I think, uh, uh, you know, an advantage in the long term. Though there will be others who are making out like bandits in the public listed markets during bull markets. But that's one of the choices you have to make when you're, you're picking a fund manager in particular. The only issue we haven't discussed is whether you're going for a fund manager who will look after all your money or potentially look after all your money or somebody who will just fill you in with a particular specialist area. We haven't really touched on that. And uh, that might be another issue we could discuss another time. Well, I think that brings us nicely to the end here, Peter. Uh, I think on these matters, we're broadly in agreement, which may not be the best thing from the listener's point of view, but certainly uh, (laughs) suggests that we are on a good wavelength here. So thank you for your time. We look forward to having another conversation shortly by when the markets may or may not have become more uh, excitable again. I think that's quite likely. We haven't talked, for example, about the uh, issue of the US debt ceiling, which is uh, an issue that might come round again. We've got the issue of interesting things happening around the world. You know, President Xi visiting Mr. Zelensky in Ukraine, offering to broker a peace deal. I'm not sure I would uh, rely on Mr. Xi to do that job for me, but we'll have to see how that pans out. So until next time, thanks as always, Peter. Thank you very much. I look forward to our next topic, which could be, for example, the de-dollarization, because everyone is now talking about de-dollarization as if it was something brand new, which it isn't. So thank you very much for another very interesting conversation. And see you next time, Jonathan. Thank you. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels, or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.